Welcome everyone to another Blaney's Podcast and we're pleased and excited to have with us in our beautiful Blaney's Podcast studio, Mr. Roland Pekaruk, who will be speaking today on what you should know before you buy a house. Good afternoon, Roman. Good afternoon, Lou. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm fine. Good. So let's jump right into this and talk about uh, the, the context in which people buy houses and that's the market that they find themselves in. And in Toronto, we're experiencing, and, and in the outlying regions of Toronto as well, we're experiencing a very hot market, a market where vendors can quickly sell their properties, where there are a lot of bids and competing bids for homes. Roman, how does that affect what goes into a purchaser's agreement of purchase and sale? What we've seen now is a transition from when the purchaser had power and was able to dictate the terms and conditions of an agreement. So, for instance, at one point in time, they were allowed to add home inspection clauses, financing clauses, uh, clauses with respect to the uh, state of various equipment and uh, pools, hot tubs, and so forth. But nowadays, the vendor likes to see minimal clauses, if at all. So now we see a power shift back to the vendors uh, where they can dictate higher purchase prices and uh, the terms of the agreements. So there must be some underlying risks that purchasers take by not putting in these clauses. Can you tell me what those risks might be? Uh, For instance, uh, with respect to home inspection clauses, uh, we see if you don't have a home inspection, obviously you're now prone to uh, environmental concerns, uh, asbestos, uh, wiring of the home. Uh, roof issues, uh, leaking in the basement. And a lot of purchasers then post-closing complain uh, about these various deficiencies and try to have the vendor reimburse them after the fact, uh, which has actually no legal standing. On top of this, uh, for instance, uh, we've had vendors get their own home inspection reports done in order to facilitate and uh, make a more expedient closing. However, we've had several clients where uh, these home inspection reports did not disclose certain issues, such as asbestos-containing materials in the basement, uh, which our client had to undertake significant repairs after. So the the market, as you say, dictates the terms and essentially uh, transfers the risk to the purchaser where, uh, where before it may have been on the vendor. Tell me... Technically speaking, when you buy a house or a home or a detached or semi-detached home as, a per- as opposed to a condominium, what are the practical differences for a purchaser when undertaking to buy one or the other? All right. So uh, with respect to semi-detached or detached, the market is quite hot. We have an average price of now of uh, over a million dollars in the city of Toronto. Um, so it's minimal terms. Now, with respect to condominiums, you're still allowed, uh, you should still be looking for a basic condition, which is the status certificate condition. The status certificate is uh, issued by the condominium corporation and outlines uh, various issues or outstanding expenses relating to the unit itself. Uh, This is very important to not simply negate, but have your lawyer do a thorough review of the status certificate for condominiums because... Without that, you will be paying for various issues after the fact. In a condominium purchase, when you are a purchaser looking to finance your purchase, are there any 
ways that you can ensure that your mortgage uh, advance from the bank or from wherever you get it from will be sufficiently high for you to buy the condominium? Um, so typically, we th- this goes back into the uh, various conditions that used to be in an agreement of purchase and sale. So you actually used to have a financing condition where wherein you would have about five days to arrange the appropriate financing. Nowadays, you just have the status certificate. So what we would recommend is during the status certificate period, you get a appraiser to actually visit the property because banks nowadays are relying heavily on the appraiser's value in the loan amount. So we've had some cases wherein our client didn't get an appraisal beforehand and the bank did its appraisal three days before closing. Appraisal came in much, much below the purchase price and they actually lost about $50,000 on their loan amount, which left them scrambling to actually come up with the money for closing. And that's interesting because you would think that the appraisal amount would reflect what the market um, should be doing. It does mostly with respect to detached and semi-detached homes, but we've seen it more and more with condo where the price is over and above the market value, and uh, this has a negative impact actually on uh, the closing. Now, when you buy a property, do you generally retain an agent to act on your behalf? Uh, It's heavily recommended. Um, However, uh, you do run into issues uh, with simply uh, having an agent and not consulting a lawyer even in the negotiation phase of uh, your agreement of purchase and sale. Uh, Lawyers are typically a lot more uh, cautionary uh, when it comes to these matters, and they try to include include clauses that will protect you, not only prior to closing, but after closing. Um, so there's different representations and warranties uh, with respect to, the, for instance, the appliances you buy and whether they're in working order or not. And those various conditions will, will ensure that they survive closing. Now, the other issue you want to look into is if you have an agent, if they're acting for both you and the seller, you sometimes run into issues where the, the agent is, isn't acting in your best interest but is acting in the other party's interest. So just be weary of that situation as well. So is there um, a recommendation here that you always, even as a purchaser, always act through an agent when you buy a property? I, I would, I, we would hi- highly recommend it. Agents do have, know the market better than anyone else. Right. Um, and they've been around, and so they'll be able to provide you with advice on not only what's competitive in that market, but uh, what's available outside, uh, maybe a couple blocks away from where you're looking. So if, if I understand you correctly, we're going back to an earlier point, is that if you do buy a home without a condition precedent of a home inspection and you do actually when you close and after you close come across a number of defects that would have been disclosed during a home inspection are are you out of luck in terms of making a claim against the vendor it depends what representations and warranties you're getting Uh, so for instance if you don't have a home inspection clause within your agreement as a condition precedent uh, prior to closing but you do have reps and warranties that speak to the status of various appliances, speak to the status of various equipment across the home. And it, it is those reps and warranties uh, which 
a lawyer should be able to assist you with in, in drafting and reviewing. Roman, when it comes to financing a home, uh, we know that there are uh, fixed mortgages, fixed rate mortgages, or fixed term mortgages, and there are uh, open mortgages. Which of those two would you recommend to your client when they buy a home? The basic answer to that is is whatever you are comfortable with. Obviously, uh, there's fixed rate versus variable rate. We've seen interest rates drop significantly in the last six months to a year. The uh, prime rate of the various institutions, for instance, has dropped uh, 0.25% over the last year. And we've thus seen the prime rate of all these banks decrease, which results in lower variable rates available to customers. Now, the market right now, we've seen our clients move towards non-traditional lenders, uh, so non-institutional lenders or non-banks. And uh, the use of mortgage brokers has significantly increased. While you get better rates from these, we would recommend that you speak to your lawyer because they'll be able to tell you what sort of lenders have, are more efficient with respect to their lending and which are last minute. What I mean by that is, for instance, if you went to a bank, there's always a standard set of documents that we prepare for the Bank of Montreal, for Royal Bank, for Toronto Dominion Bank. It's these standard documents rarely change. If we have these new non-traditional lenders come in, their requirements are quite extensive, which leads to a lot more legal work, which leads to a lot more fuss towards the end of the transaction. For instance, uh, we had a client uh, on the day of closing was asked to gather financial statements, was asked to gather evidence of equity, all within two hours leading up to closing. So it's a scramble to even get it done. So the documents that you uh, would see in a non-traditional lender are different as well in terms of what the client signs? Yes, they are. And usually it's quite more extensive. uh, Various statutory declarations where you make statements with respect to uh, your financial background, with respect to uh, no secondary financing, which can add stress uh, with respect to especially new home buyers. Uh, because they're a little bit intimidated by the giant stack of paper we have waiting for them when they walk into the room. I can understand that. Uh, Let's talk about finances versus uh, putting money down. So let's say you buy a house in Toronto for $500,000. How much of it, if you were going to put the minimum amount of money down, how much of it would be cash and how much of it would be a mortgage? Uh, What would you generally recommend is try to come up with the 20% deposit. And the reasoning for this is is if you do not have the 20% deposit, uh, what typically happens is is the bank gets that mortgage insured, uh, CMHC insured. So on top of the principal you're actually borrowing from the bank, you have to actually uh, pay interest on an additional amount, which the bank is, which is the CMHC insurance. Uh, the only downfall to this is because the market is skyrocketing. We see a lot of first-time home buyers, especially, being stuck with these uh, CMHC insured mortgages, and it's a bit of a surprise that they're not only paying on the amount borrowed, but twenty to thirty thousand dollars of insurance. Uh, 
after the fact. And this is money that they receive no benefit from and they can't use. It's just the bank requires it in order to process the loan. When you are acting for someone who is buying a cottage as opposed to a home in the city, are, are there different issues that you look at, different terms you might put in an agreement of purchase and sale? Uh, yeah, the two basic ones that any sort of lender would actually want to see is potability of water and septic system. You have to ensure that you receive reports with respect to both of them and both of them come out fine. So potability, you're looking for the drinkability of the water, obviously. And for septic system, you want to make sure that it's operational and there's no issues. If you don't have those two, it's very rare that a lender will actually uh, forward you any money to purchase those properties. I also can imagine that nobody would actually want to buy those properties if they don't know their water is uh, drinkable or their septic system works. So how do you go about ensuring that the septic system is working and that the water is drinkable? We spoke earlier about the City of Toronto's market and the surrounding areas, wherein the vendor can dictate the terms, wherein conditions are limited. However, in cottage country, it's a little bit different. Those are standard clauses, and we haven't seen the removal of them just yet. We've seen them in extreme circumstances where when we're talking 10 to $20 million cottages, but on a regular cottage, uh, we, we haven't seen the removal of those conditions as of yet. So they would be a condition precedent. And, and would you actually go in and hire someone to test the drinking water and uh, check the, cystic, the, the septic system? Uh, typically, the vendor would actually have these reports ready for you to review. and But if they are still dated, yes, you would actually make a condition where you get an inspector to come in and, and take care of that for you. As part of buying a home, whether it's a home in Toronto or a cottage property home, would you recommend that the purchaser go out and get a survey? It's quite an interesting point. So in order to proceed with a residential purchase transaction, uh, lenders usually want one of two things. They want off-title inquiries and a survey completed, or they want title insurance. A survey can cost anywhere between $1,000 to $2,000 to complete. Off-title inquiries include everything from taxes, water, building zoning, unregistered easements or rights over your property. And we have no control over when we receive these responses from the various governmental authorities. So we're looking at a cost around $2,000 minimum uh, with respect to uh, getting off-title inquiries and getting a proper appropriate survey done. On the other hand, you have a title insurer that, for instance, on a million-dollar home for lending and for purchasing, it would cost approximately $1,200 or so. So you're saving costs, and plus that title insurance policy would cover you on any defects that would be uh, indicated on an up-to-date plan of survey. There is oftentimes uh, perhaps a misconception by a purchaser as to what their property really looks like and is owned by them on a cottage property. And what I'm referring to is the lake or the, is the lakefront and the beach in front of it. Does a cottager who buys that property own that lakefront? Not necessarily. It's important that you look at uh, the, the property index map or parcel uh, register uh, and legal description of your property to ensure that it includes the shore road allowance. 
what we've seen happen though is is these shore road allowances are actually forming part of the property because a lot of cottage owners are negotiating with the town or the municipality to actually purchase uh, this additional lands for minimum cost. Uh, but it's not surprising to come across a cottage land where the shore road allowance still belongs to the municipality. So technically, your beachfront or your lakefront does not belong to you. That's interesting, but a lot of people would be surprised to hear that when they buy their cottage. Um, I just have uh, one last question. I want to talk to you about how um, title can be taken by purchasers, and uh, in, in other words, joint or several or in their own name, and what is the best thing for them to do? How do you determine what is the best way for them to hold title? So there's two basic forms uh, when people purchase homes. You have joint tenancy, uh, which means that two or more people hold the pro- hold title to the property. And if one of those people were to become deceased, title will automatically revert to the other ones that are on, appear on title. So we typically see these cases in husband and wife. Husband passes away. Uh, title after a registration, which is a survivorship application, uh, passes on to the remaining member. The other option is tenancies in common, wherein one person uh, passes away and the rights not do not automatically revert back to the remaining person on title, but to the estates of each person. What we would recommend is have a discussion with your significant other or the person you're purchasing the property with. Discuss the options available, but also you may want to consult with your accountant to discuss financial repercussions of, of, of going on title in the different manners or uh, tax planning purposes. What I mean by that is, in some cases, uh, individuals who buy their non-principal residences for investment properties, they sometimes like to appear on title as a holding company. Okay, well, uh, Roman, we could go on like this, uh, and maybe we'll, we'll, we'll schedule another one. But for the time being, I want to thank you for, for coming and giving us your knowledge on uh, what to look for when you buy a home. And if uh, our listening audience wants to get in touch with you to ask for some advice or to retain you for that purpose, can you tell me your contact information, your phone number, your email address? Uh, my phone number here, my direct line is 416-597-4896. And my email is rp as in Peter, E-K-A-R-U-K at Blaney.com. And I'd be happy to help with any questions you guys have. Thanks, Roman. Appreciate it. Thank you.